Welcome, welcome everyone to another episode of the Bastards of Boston Baseball. Shout out to any new listeners who are joining us for the very first time. We're happy to have you on board. For those of you who have been here from the start, you already know the drill. We live and die by this team just like the rest of you, and we make no apologies for that. I'm your host, Jason Kelly, coming to you from Canton, Massachusetts. If you want to find us on Twitter, you can find the podcast account at Bastards underscore Boston. Joining me on the show tonight from Reading, Pennsylvania, is Micah Storms. Micah, how are you? Jason, I'm well. I am past the point where I'm letting the Red Sox ruin my night. I have officially come to terms with the season. I did that about maybe a little over a week ago. Um, am I frustrated by this series? 100%, but I can just let it go because to me, I'm looking at 2024 and beyond, and it's disappointing. It's not where I wanted the team to be with two and a half, three weeks left, but I'm not letting it ruin my night. I'm still going to sleep just fine, and that's where I'm at right now. I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, it's there is a sense of inner peace you get from no longer bashing your head against the wall, trying to convince yourself that this is a playoff team. You know, it's, some of us realize what the reality is, but hey, you know, that's just what we do over here. I did that for a very long time, and I, I admit I'm an optimist. I want to be. Um, but then it, uh, I feel like it leads you to a little bit deeper cut than you really needed to, to give yourself. Well, welcome to the right side of history, Micah. We're happy to have you here. <laughs> also with us on the show tonight from Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, by way of Wyndham, Maine, is Terry Cushman. Terry, how are you doing? I am doing splendid as always. Uh, Red Sox, five games back. I think they lost a half a game uh, this series. Uh, Toronto has slipped into that third place right now despite losing today. The Rangers are well on their way to losing to the Houston Astros, so it should stay right at five games. But don't get comfortable in fourth place. The New York Yankees have won five games in a row, and they're one and a half games behind. So we might be in the cellar again for the third out of four years uh, in the in the bloom era. So uh, we'll we'll see how that goes. But uh, I picked a sweep, and I did admit uh, on that prediction show that game one was the most winnable for the Red Sox, and. That is the one that they did end up winning. Tampa blew a three nothing lead uh, for for that to happen. So, is what it is. Yeah, it's sad to really think about that. Last place is not out of the question just yet. Um, for those of you who peep the schedule, the Red Sox have four against the Yankees next week. So um, that could definitely turn the tides on, on that one in terms of who finishes in last place because they are running out of time for sure. And this series did not help for any who had those wild card aspirations. Oh, they're not too far out. They can sneak back in. Red Sox do what they always tend to do. They shoot themselves in the foot and they're even further back now. And here we stand. They lost two out of three to the Rays. Uh, as much of a tumultuous season as that team is having, they can still put together some wins and they can still make your life pretty miserable. So let's get straight into it. Let's get into our bottom five list for this series. Micah, lead us off. Who's coming in at number five? Or I, I guess I should say what 
is coming in at number five. <laughs> I feel like I've done 80% bottom five lists since I've joined the podcast. And I'm hoping next year the tides turn. But uh, coming in at number five is a little bit of an outside the box one. It is Tropicana Field. And the Red Sox end their 2023 campaign in Tampa going one and six. So just brutal there. Um, and then if you go back to last year, last year they were one and nine. So according to my calculations, that puts them at two and 15 over the last two years. And it's really just the, the disparity between this team that has kind of led the division over the last two years and where the Red Sox are trying to get to. There's just a big gap between these two teams and the Red Sox sometimes look like a team that could compete, but the Rays do it pretty consistently all season long. And that's the difference between these two teams. And, you know, when you go one and six, that's five games below 500 right there. That's a, that's a, you got to gain those games somewhere and that's challenging to do. And, I am so sick of Tropicana Field. This ballpark is a joke. Uh, we we saw it in full effect in this series. Abreu, I don't think the ball hit this hit the catwalk, but it definitely probably he got he lost it. He took his eye off it. Couldn't find it again in the in the um, the roof there, and he ends up dropping it between Yoshida and him, uh, which led to three runs. And then we saw Devers. I mean, that ball, I, I really think off Glasnow to, uh, on Thursday or on Wednesday, I'm sorry. Um, I think that was a home run. I really think that would have been gone. That ball was smoked into the air and it hits the ceiling somewhere. Devers gets a double. It's just so stupid. Like, it makes no sense that you could hit something in the air in fair play, but yet it just, the play continues. I, I don't understand that. There was. I think the, there was less than 20,000 fans in the last two games, and this is the second best team in the American League, and they can't get anybody to show up. It's just the whole stadium's a joke. They need to relocate. Major League Baseball needs to do a, a better job of getting them out of there, and it, it needs to happen soon because nobody should be playing on that stupid turf with a stupid dome. I hate when the Red Sox play there. It's just 640 start times. Everything about it just drives me nuts, and I just... The Red Sox can't win there, and it, it's pretty obvious. Uh, I think the last time they they succeeded was in 2021, but it, it just – I feel like they haven't played well there for, it feels like, two decades. Terry? Well, as far as moving out of Tampa, I think the pressure is going to be finally on them. I think they're front and center now that Oakland – has seemed to have resolved it by formally announcing they're moving to Vegas. So I can't think of another team that wants to relocate or, or build a new stadium. I'm sure others might want to tentatively. Um, Kaufman field is old. And I think they did mention it uh, in the last series, but the trop like without, without looking, what year do you think that opened? Oh, it had to have been, what, 96, 97, right before the team got in? It was actually earlier than that. They, mm, I was going to guess 99. 1990 is when it first opened. So this isn't even a new stadium with a flawed concept. It's just 
it's a relatively old stadium by most metrics. I, I mean, just off the top of my head, Kaufman's older, Fenway's older, Angel Stadium is older, um, Dodger Stadium or whatever they call it, Chavez Ravine. Um, it, it's got to be among the oldest 10, let's put it that way. So we'll see. And as far as as far as us not doing well there, I mean, both teams have gone in opposite directions in terms of talent, basically, and balance. I mean, this year, Tampa has the number four offense. They've been to two World Series, and they had pitching both times. They just didn't have the offense to get it done. And now they have offense. And, I mean, you look at guys like Yandy Diaz, Josh Lowe. Um, I'm drawing blanks, but they've got a pretty robust offense that that can do a lot of damage. And they've they've done that to us. So the Red Sox, I mean, we haven't been terrible offensively. Last year we struggled with the long ball, but... It's mostly been pitching for us. Isak Paredes. Half of MLB fans have never heard of this guy. He's going to he's gonna probably finish the season with over 30 home runs, maybe 35. He'll be a 35-1-10 guy, basically. And Randy Arozarena, if I had like a top five list of players I'd love to have, he'd be in the top five. I love his energy. I love how he shows up in the postseason. He, he, even in what year was it? 2020. I mean, that was his coming out party. And he was pretty good last season as well. Had some big moments. So they've been pretty good. And who cares about Wander Franco at this point? <laughs> I mean, they're, they're still, their trajectory isn't any different. So I think that's why, that's why they're, um, destroying us there yeah i i hate this stadium i hate tropicana field um i lived in tampa for five years went to college there went to a bunch of Rays games mostly when the red sox were in town um the stadium's a dump it's a toilet it's awful and worst part is if you live in tampa you've got to drive a good 30 minutes to get there because the stadium's actually in st petersburg it's not in tampa so you've got to drive across the uh, the interstate, and then that goes from four lanes to two to cross the one bridge that gets you from Tampa to St. Petersburg. So you bottleneck there, you're sitting in traffic, and then you get to go sit in a dome that has not many great amenities. It's too loud because they adopted the stupid cowbell. So you get the drunk Rays fans, you know, clanging the cowbell around in an empty dome stadium. So it's, you know, bouncing off the walls everywhere. Um, It's, it's a terrible experience for a fan. And this is why they end up with seven, 8,000 at most every night, because even though the team is very good, the team's been good for many years now, getting to that stadium and having to sit there for a game, even though tickets probably only cost like 20 bucks is a miserable experience. And I really do think that now with the athletics moving, the Rays are the next team that MLB needs to step in and say, no more. Like, that, this, this is not working. We can't have 
baseball games, especially with a good franchise that for the most part is pretty well run and competes every year. We can't have you only bringing in seven, 8,000 fans every night. So I hope they relocate. I've been saying for years, I want them to go to Nashville. Nashville, I think would be a great baseball market for, for MLB to expand to. Um, maybe you'd have to do some realignment, but whatever, you can figure that out later. But I, I just, every time I see a series at the drop where the Red Sox have to go there, I'm like, something stupid is going to happen. Someone's going to hit the catwalk, or someone like our precious center fielder there is going to lose a ball in the lights because it's just, it's a weird stadium. It's, it's not built for Major League Baseball. It looks like minor league games should be taking place there, not major league games. So I hope that at some point in the near future, we hear about relocation plans for the Tampa Bay Rays and you know to move them out of that stadium, out of Tampa, to a real city that might actually care about baseball. Because here's the other thing. Having lived there, you people down there in Tampa, you don't care about that team. And you know you don't care about that team. You get your free Rays shirt with your $15 ticket and you pretend to care, but you really don't. So that team has too much talent and they're too well run. They deserve real fans in a real stadium. Get them out of that toilet as soon as you can, because it is just, it's the worst stadium in baseball. And it, it certainly will absolutely hold that title after the athletics move. So I agree. I, I think that they're next in line and I hope it happens soon. I wonder if if Manfred might even force the owner to sell it at some point. You know that that's not unprecedented. Um, one counterpoint to Nashville: I wouldn't hate it if it went there, but um, I really like Montreal because the market is still there. Like there's still Expos fans. That there's still stories that are told about that team. And geographically, if you're going to keep it in the AL East, it makes sense. It's just a short plane ride for you know, Boston and, and New York, um, not, not all that long for Baltimore. And, and of course, Toronto, I just, it's a, it's a ready made, um, fan base already with Nashville. You're kind of cutting into the Braves fan base a little bit. Um, it might still play okay as long as it stays in the national league, which I'm guessing it will. I mean, excuse me, the American league rather. Um, but yeah, so I we'll see, but uh, I think we're done for 2024 anyway. Uh, 2023, excuse me. <laughs> I don't even know what year it is tonight. That's not a good sign. Thank God for that. <laughs> Mike, any other thoughts? Yeah, if I, I listen to a lot of reporters uh, or and writers who are well connected um, with Major League Baseball, and they say without a doubt that expansion is coming to major league baseball um and with expansion realignment will come as well with the division so i agree with montreal being a, a destination i agree with terry um but i don't think they would necessarily consider it with the idea that we have to keep them in the american league east because i think five to ten years from now I don't think Tampa Bay is going to be playing in the American League East because I don't know what the divisions are going to be, and I think they're going to be all jumbled. Um, so I just – it seems like that's going to be – I could see that being like Manfred's last um, thing he really does for the game is he expands and realigns. 
Yeah, and for the record, I love Montreal getting a team again. Um, I would actually put that ahead of Nashville in terms of my wish list. I just think that in terms of capital and in terms of you know what's more realistic, I could see the city of Nashville putting more money towards a baseball stadium and towards actually hosting uh, an MLB team more than Montreal will at this point. Uh, but we'll see what happens. I do agree with Mike. I think expansion is coming. So uh, could they could be that we get the both, best of both worlds where Montreal and Nashville both have teams at some point in the future, but might be a while. If expansion does come, I guess it would add what one more team to each league. So it would be odd again. Why not just have do it like the NBA? Just you got your Eastern Conference, you got your Western Conference, and you you could still go American or National League. Even I, I don't even care. But but scrap the divisions and just have the leagues, and then the top six from each one get in, and that's it. That's that's what I would do. And I I actually yeah I love the idea a lot. Yeah, like why not just go to conferences? I think it makes the playoff structure all that much stronger because we're seeing we'll see it this year the division winners like whoever wins their division from the AL Central is going to be the weakest playoff team in that format and would it even be a playoff team yeah it must I would think yeah but it's it's going to be super weak whereas if you do conferences it kind of balances out a little bit more I think one second I just want to make sure um Got it up right now. 73, they would not be a playoff team, the Minnesota Twins. Oh, actually, would they? This is where it gets confusing. They they would be, yeah, because Texas is ahead of them. Um, excuse me, they would not be. Texas would be the number six seed. So so Minnesota would be out, Audi 5,000. Yep. Shame on them. All they needed was some bats. They had the pitching, but... Um, the only thing I wonder is with the schedule, like if they're trying to keep an even schedule, like how would that work with like America? Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like, would they have to reduce the games to make it work where you play everyone in the American league three times and everyone in that, like, I just, I don't know how that would work with the schedule. Cause you would want, if you have everybody in one division or one conference, say you would want the schedule to be fairly equal um, so that way it, it's really a true champion because everyone in the American League East plays each other the same amount of times. That's why it works. So I just the scheduling of that would be quite interesting. I'm sure yeah, they that's, could resolve it. Yeah, and that could lead to a shorter MLB season, which I also think is on the table for the future. I, I think at some point the 162 is going to go away. Um, you know, it might start with 140, but – you know, I, I do think that that could lead to that discussion as well, which is not the worst thing. Um, I, I think a, sh- a slightly shorter schedule, especially if you're going to realign and redo it like that, may not be the worst thing. But we'll see if any of that ever happens. I just, again, just get the raise the hell out of that dump, for God's sakes. Like, just move them somewhere. Uh, so with that, we'll move on to number four on our bottom five, and that is going to be the closer for the Red Sox, a one Kenley Jansen, who has not been great his last few outings. He did have one clean inning in game one where pitched pretty well. You know, nothing catastrophic happened, but go back to the Kansas City series. He pitched in the finale of that one. Um, wasn't a safe situation, which a lot of people were 
upset about Pete Abraham, you know, being Pete Abraham, of course, tweeted about it saying, well, Kenley Jansen is showing exactly why closers don't like to pitch in non-safe situations. Yeah, because he gave up two runs and looked very vulnerable. Um, I would counter-argue that by saying if you're a great closer, it shouldn't matter. You just go in and pitch your inning and get it done with. He had troubles in Kansas City, and he had big-time troubles in Tampa Bay. Uh, came in in game two. Again, Red Sox took the lead in the 10th, um, took a 6-5 lead. Jansen comes on. Obviously, Tampa has their ghost runner on. They get a bunt single that wasn't fielded great, but they get an extra runner from that, and then he gives up a missile to to Lau, who hits a three-run bomb and walks it off for the Rays, and that is your ball game. So really, two of Jansen's last three outings have not been good. He's looked very vulnerable. He's been hit hard, and... It's kind of just you throw it in the same bucket of like this team was so close to contending to getting right back into that wild card race and potentially making a run and just certain things fell apart. And now the back end of your bullpen, apart from Chris Martin, is falling apart. Kenley Jansen can't have a clean save anymore. It's just disappointing. Look, he's had a good year. He's under contract for next year as well. I'm fine with that. Um, very few blips on the radar, but when he does have those blips, they tend to come in bad moments. And this series was one of them. You needed that second win, you know, taking the first two games of a three game series against the Rays in a position where the Red Sox are right now would have been so crucial. And he comes in and just pukes all over his cleats at, at the absolute wrong time. So, um, you know, I'm not like against Kenley Jansen. I'm not, you know, I'm not against him coming back next year and resuming that closer role. He is under contract, like I said, so fine with that. But these are the games you need, you know, these are the saves you really need. And he just wasn't there. It was very disappointing. And I think it really set them up for, you know, heading into game three, having to face Tyler Glass now with an exhaustive bullpen. He just kind of put them in an impossible situation. So, not a good outing from him, and honestly, at this point, there's not many more meaningful saves he can lock up for you with the amount of games remaining and how far out of it you are at this point. So that might have been his last chance to really kind of give you what you needed, and he failed, unfortunately. Uh, Micah, what are your thoughts on what happened with Jansen this week? Yeah, this is uh it was a tough one because like you said they really needed it, but my I think my problem with Jansen is how he was used because he's been dealing with that hamstring injury and you could see it in game 1, he kind of grimaced and then they came out or game 1 of the series, series when he got the save, they came out, they checked on him but he stayed in. But he threw 21 pitches Sunday in Kansas City in a 7-1 ball game. Like, I know he hadn't worked much prior to that, but you're going to go to Tampa Bay against a team you know you can't beat and in a in a stadium that you never win at. So those games, if you're in them, they're going to be tight. So why use Jansen the day before in a 7-1 game? That's what I don't understand because Tuesday, when he gave up the walk-off home run, you were asking him to pitch three days in a row. And there's been a lot of talk this year about Jansen on back-to-back nights, and he hasn't been very good. And he was pretty good on on Monday night when he got the save on back-to-back nights. 
And then you're asking him to go three straight nights. And that just, to me, that seems like a huge ask. Would I have put him in in that situation? Absolutely. You're in, this is desperation mode if you're the Boston Red Sox. So you have to pitch him. But why did you pitch him against Kansas City? Like, if you're going to say, well, he hasn't thrown in five days or whatever it was, okay, that's fine. But what's one more day of rest to make sure he's ready for Tampa Bay? That's what I don't understand. Like I would want Jansen to be fully rested going into Tampa rather than to make sure he gets some work in a 7-1 game going into Tampa. That's what I didn't understand. And to me, it kind of set him up to fail in that, that second game, especially with the Manfred man starting the inning at second base. Holding runners on is a major struggle for Jansen. So just adding that element to it, um, he it, that inning, he was terrible. He was. It seemed like he was going to give up a home run much sooner than that because every pitch he was throwing was right down the middle of the plate. He was not locating anything. Um, but he was out there. He was giving it his all. And, I mean, I, I've enjoyed Jansen this year, but I don't understand the usage over the last couple of days. I made no sense to me. And I, to me, it set them up to be not prepared for Tuesday night, and then if they were in the game today, he would have been unavailable. So I just don't know how you can go into today's game expecting to win when you don't have Martin or Jansen available. That seems like such a, a tall task, especially when Glasnow's on the mound. Terry? I was just shocked at how fast it ended. It was just bing, bing, boom, out. I mean, like that Will Ferrell line from Anchorman, you know, boy, that escalated quickly. <laughs> It was just, it was fast. And um, aside from that, in the eighth inning, you saw Jansen up and starting to get loose. He still had his hoodie on, so he wasn't throwing necessarily. But by all indications, he was going to be pitching the ninth. And then all of a sudden, it was Schreiber. And I'm at the point in the season where I want to be mad about everything. Um, and I, I was trying to make up my mind. I'm like, well, is this a good move? Save him for extras with the ghost runner. And I just thought to myself, I'm like, well, I'm not going to like anybody <laughs> in extras anyway. So I guess I'm fine with it. And, um, and the frustrating thing about that game was the, the Rays gave the Red Sox so many opportunities to win it. And, and the Rays, you know, blew it, you know, when they tried going home with uh, um, with Lowe there in the uh, Brandon Lau in the 10th inning. And he got gunned down by like 20 feet. I was like, you know, they're just they, they tried so hard to blow that game. It felt like and then the Red Sox were the ones that ended up blowing it. But as far as Jansen goes, he's had. 33 opportunities to record a save and he's recorded 29 of them. So he's blown four. And I'm just curious, like if we were better and we were able to hand him more ninth innings with a lead, how, like would he be worse? I, I don't know. I, I don't know who the real Kenley Jansen is at this point, but uh, on the other hand, he's still a massive upgrade over what we were dealing with last year. We didn't know who the closer was the whole season last year. So I don't hate it either. Like Jason said, we've got him next year. I don't expect 
he's going to be a huge liability. Uh, we also have uh, Martin under control next year as well. So I don't see a ton changing there. Interestingly, you know who we didn't see the whole series? Garrett Whitlock. Yeah. So that, I just thought that was interesting. I don't know if he's working through stuff or not, but but it is what it is. And um, it, it's like he sl- sleepwalked into that uh, 11th inning and uh, took the took the raise about 60 seconds to get the walk and then get the ball over the fence. Yeah, it's it's interesting. That's an interesting note about Whitlock that we didn't see him at all this series. But uh, who knows with him? Maybe he's just hurt again. And, he could you know. be. Yeah. Yeah, that wouldn't that wouldn't shock me either. Why but. couldn't he pitch against? Uh, why couldn't he pitch that ninth inning uh, against Kansas City? Let's see, had he pitched? Wow, he didn't even pitch the Kansas City series. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. I wonder what I mean, they're. Set, what are they seven hiding? one game. You don't trust him to go in there. Mm. Yeah. Let's see. When was the last time he pitched? Oh, that's the Rays. I'm going backwards. Uh, let's see. I'm going through my, what series is this? This is the Astros series. He did pitch. So game three of the Astros series was the last time he pitched. And I don't think it was good either. Let's see. Two innings, four hits, one earned run, two walks, two strikeouts. So not a, not a great outing for Whitlock. So, huh. We'll see. I mean, we got Baltimore coming up. That's probably not a good series for him, but. Yeah, I'm curious to see what they're doing there. If they're just protecting him or, I don't know, they're pseudo-shutting him down. Not sure, but it's a fair point. Like, that 7-1 game against in the Kansas City finale, like, why not pitch him there? Instead of throwing your closer in who you know can't pitch that many days in a row and you've got an important Tampa series coming up. Definitely some second-guessing uh, to go there. So, Jansen, not the only pitcher who struggled in this series, uh, which will lead us to... Number three on our list, Terry, who's number three on the bottom five. I am going with Cutter Crawford, and so many people wanted to defend Crawford because of that second inning. You know, the error happened. He ended up pitching about, it was like 20, 25, maybe even more pitches than he would have had the out been recorded uh, in the outfield there. But at the same time, he wasn't great. Uh, his his velocity still down from what it was in the first half. Uh, he walked four guys. So it's not like he was out there and, you know, I mean, I think there was an error tonight with Glass now on the mound. Was he rattled at all or did he just quickly get the next out? Um, so, and I'm not saying Crawford is glass now. He might, if he ever gets traded to Tampa, but, um, but on the Red Sox roster, he's definitely not, uh, Tyler glass now. Um, yeah, so just not a good outing and it's just, these are the consequences of not putting, not signing better pitching, uh, at the beginning of the season. Um, Corey Kluber is going to start a rehab assignment <laughs> that that came out uh, in the last 24 hours. So, um, so maybe we'll, maybe we'll just rearrange the chairs on the Titanic and, and uh, get a, get a Kluber spot start. I think they did say he, he would be in the bullpen, but, but we're extremely thin and 
not not a lot of overpowering stuff here from the guys that we are using so um i i thought it was basically an automatic loss and uh that's basically what it ended up being yeah fear not reinforcements are on the way <laughs> mike uh, what are your thoughts on uh cutter crawford I'm a huge Cutter Crawford fan, um, but it's been a rough couple starts here now. Uh, looks like probably fatigue, and Crawford is one of those guys that he has very little um, margin for error when he pitches. So an error like that from Abreu, that just doesn't help him. Um, and then we've talked about it before on previous um, podcasts when he's pitched, that the walks when he is walking hitters, he just cannot afford that because he's going to give up his fair share of hits. Um, and that's fine. But when you're walking guys on top of it, then I don't see how he, he has the stuff to really escape those jams that he ends up putting himself in. And I also don't understand in that fifth inning, he gives up a double and then he walks a guy and then he walks another guy. And then Joe Jakes comes in like, why are you bringing Joe Jakes in in the bases loaded with zero margin for error? I don't understand that. Like, why why leave Crawford into? I guess they were trying to get him through the fifth inning, but why leave him in to walk another batter when he's already struggled with command? And he he was at almost sixty pitches through two innings, so he was taxed. I just the, the putting guys in it, it seems to be a, a reoccurring issue of putting guys in in spots where they give up a ground, a soft grounder or anything. And it's an automatic run or a couple of runs like Joe Jakes hit somebody, which it was ridiculous. I don't want to see Joe Jakes on the 2024 Red Sox, but he hit somebody and a run scores. I don't know why, like to me, put Chris Martin in the game in that spot, because that game was on the line right there. Like I it just, why put Joe Jakes in the game when the game's on the line? That made no sense. I wouldn't have left Crawford in that long. He he definitely was losing it, and you know I I still think Crawford can start, but we are definitely seeing a pitcher who, with the velocity and everything, it looks like he is at the tail end of what he has left to give to the Boston Red Sox this season. He's a bulk guy, in my opinion. I mean, that's truly what he should be. Yeah, and and I wouldn't hate that either. I still stand by what I said on the last show where. You know, I would rather have Cutter Crawford as my number five starter than pay, you know, too much for a Giolito or have Bloom hand out another prize winning $10 million contract to some aging bum who's going to get hurt, you know, two weeks into the season and we'll never see him again. But Crawford is limited. And I think now you're just looking at a guy who's he's exhausted. You know, he, he's never pitched this much. He's been asked to do a lot for this team this year and yeah like the defensive team behind him let's face it it's garbage it's one of the worst defensive red sox teams we've ever seen in our lifetime so for a guy like him who he can miss bats at times but when he's up against a good team like tampa bay that you know has patient at bats and you know knows how to exploit a pitcher like him he's going to give up contact and when your defense behind you is just so awful and just you know hurts the pitcher so much it makes Crawford's life that much more difficult and then he has to throw more pitches and there's stress pitches because there's runners on base and all of a sudden he's out of the game after 80 or so pitches because he has to be you don't want to burn him out 
Um, I totally agree with what Mike said, though. Bringing in Joe Jakes in that situation, bases loaded, and that's who you go to? Are you kidding me? Like, And I get Cora's trying to play the matchups, left-handed batter coming up. I still would rather have Chris Martin in that spot. Joe Jakes, and of course, first pitch hits him right in the back. And the rest of the inning just fell apart after that. It's like, so that that's not so much a Crawford thing. That's a Cora thing. But that was just, that irritated me so much for a manager who is all about, I want to win now, but hey, bases are low with two outs. Who should I bring in? Oh, yeah, Joe Jakes, this nobody who is a journeyman, barely a major league player. Let's bring him, bring him in. That's that's great. That that really works. Joe well. Jokes. I think that's what his name is. Joe Jokes. Seriously, it might as well be at this point. It, it was just such awful decision making, and it just again it, it just completely screws over Cutter Crawford and the effort that he put in. So um, I'm not like, and and when I say that I want him to be the number five starter next year, that's not me saying that I'm fully invested in Cutter Crawford. That's just me assuming that. High and Bloom or whoever is in charge of the offseason is not going to go out and add three new starting pitchers to this rotation because that's what you need. If you don't want Cutter Crawford being your number five starter, you need to add at least two or three solid MLB arms in the offseason. I don't see High and Bloom or whoever's in charge doing that. So I just assume Cutter Crawford is going to take over the Nick Pavetta role and he's going to be your number five slash bulk guy, and that's the way it's going to be. So I I don't hate the guy. I don't hate his talent. I think there's a little something there, but the ceiling's not all that high. He may have already reached it, frankly. Um, he's just he's a very average pitcher, and the Red Sox, with the position the roster is in and the position that they're in, they're asking way too much of him. And that's kind of what you see in this last month. It's just they're trying to squeeze too much out of that orange, and there's nothing left. So we'll see what his role is next year, but I hope they utilize him a little bit better. Theo Epstein would add two to three starters. That's a teaser yep. for uh, roundtable. Uh, lots of uh, possibly Bloom getting fired talk and uh, some rumors surrounding possible replacements. Um, as far as Jake's, that was a lefty lefty matchup, but why not go with Bernardino? Not that that's definitely, that's necessarily perfect, but I mean, it, your confidence level is still higher with him trying to get that last out and, and you went to him anyway later in the game. So it's not like he wasn't available. So I, I don't, I don't understand uh, what's going on, but Mike, uh, will uh, lead us into some more confusion, I guess. So, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Micah, who do we got coming at number two? He was a key part of that Cutter Crawford start, unfortunately. Yeah, number two is William Abreu, and um, it was it was a tough series for him. Definitely the probably the worst we've seen him in his, his short time with the Sox. He was one for ten, and he had a, a crucial error in game two on when Crawford was pitching on the fly ball. Uh, dropped it, um, looked like some miscommun miscommunication with Yoshida, and next thing you know, three runs come in, and Crawford's at 60 pitches, and it, it just it got a, it was out of control. Um, and something I was I was listening to the Athletic podcast that has Keith Law. Now I know how some fans 
think of Keith Law and his baseball knowledge, and that's fine. But he was talking, they were talking about just recent call-ups, and they brought up Abreu. And he's like, I think it's a good idea that they brought him up. Um, but just no scout really thinks he's going to be much of anything. And I thought that was kind of interesting because I think there's been a lot of buzz among Red Sox fans that he could be a, a starting outfield option. And I personally am, am high on him. I think there is something in the bat. But I do think maybe we need to pump the brakes a little bit with Abreu because you know we saw Tristan Casas, who is – was one of the top prospects in baseball and he struggled for months and Abreu is by far not anywhere near <laughs> a top prospect. So it's only, we can only assume that he's probably going to struggle in his first time in the big league. So that's on Abreu in this series. But what I don't understand is why are we seeing Abreu as a center fielder? I don't understand that because they called up Rafaela and he's their third ranked prospect in the system. And he's supposed to be this gold glove center fielder that they don't seem to want to put in center field. That doesn't make any sense to me because the defense has been atrocious all season long. And that includes center field. Center field hasn't been very good because Jaron Duran played a lot of center field. And despite his improvements, he hasn't had a good defensive season in center field. So why not improve the one of the most important positions on the diamond and put Rafaela in center field. I, I, I don't understand that. Uh, Rafaela also, like, we're trying to get him at bats, I would think, and putting him – has he started a game in center field? I know he's gotten in the game as a defensive replacement, but I don't recall a game where he started center field. I don't recall one either. So, like, what are, what are they doing? Like, why not – he should be trying to get as many ABs as possible to try to get that those, those jitters out and, and try to build some comfort. And he came in today. Yes, it was against a lefty, but came in today and doubles right down the, the left field line. And I, I don't understand. He had three hits yesterday. Ride the hot hand. He was scorching hot in AAA. So I, I just don't understand not, not playing him. I, the only thing I can think of is they're trying to showcase Abreu to try to build up his trade value to move him in the offseason. But I just I don't think that's worth it. I would much rather see... You move, you, you give Rafaela the the ABs, and you sure up a, a spot in the outfield that you know. Okay, I don't have to worry about the ball going out to center field because I got my best defender out there. And you worry about Abreu's value in the offseason because Abreu is not going to be the centerpiece of a trade. He's not. He's going to be the second or third piece of a trade. So I don't I don't see building his trade value much right now. But I, I don't know. I. I've been a Cora supporter all season long, and I just, there's been so many head scratching decisions over the last couple of weeks. And I just, I, even the explanations he gives, they don't make much sense to me. And this is another one. I, I just, I want Rafaela in the, in the lineup every day. If you want to play him some games at shortstop, fine. But if he's going to be your center fielder of the future, why not give him time to to figure out center field and especially at Fenway Park? I, I just I don't understand it. Terry. If Sadon Rafaela starts center field yesterday, the Red Sox most likely win the game. So the fatal error took place when when the lineup card got filled out prior to the game. 
So uh, another thing that's hilarious is our former co-host, uh, Andrew Dwan, uh, chirped to me yesterday because I, I had a tweet saying, if your center field prospect was playing center field in all caps, uh, Crawford would have been out of the inning at 30 pitches with a 0-0 score. And apparently Abreu has more starts in the outfield than Rafaela does. But what what he didn't point out was the the ability level. One's probably barely an average outfielder defensively. The other one, um, a potential gold glove perennial outfielder. So we probably win the game uh, if Rafaela is out there. You had plenty of options in the infield if you didn't want to start uh, Trevor Story. Uh, you could have, uh, I don't know if Urias, uh, yeah, Urias did start, but um, you could have you could have worked it out one way or the other um, as far as um, getting a middle infielder in there. But as what it is, um, it, I, you know, there's a lot of fatigue. I don't doubt that with especially Alex Cora. I mean, he's had to work harder than any other manager in major league baseball. And I'm not a Cora guy. I'm kind of hoping we'll have a new manager next year, but, but man, this, this season has felt like a lifetime. Yeah, and as far as that um, ultra witty response we got to our uh, podcast account, it's actually it was actually dumber than you painted it as because what he actually said, I guess these are the real numbers, is that Rafaela has started in center field eighty eight more times than Willier Abreu. Okay, that's half a season. That's more than half an MLB season. So what does that tell you? That tells me that Rafael is more of a center field than, than William Abreu. And yeah, I agree with you. If he was starting in center field, that error probably doesn't happen. And that game may have changed drastically because of that. So yeah, I you know, screw us for not knowing the exact number of games that Rafael is starting in center field, but I'm pretty sure everything about him is this is your future starting center fielder. This is the guy that you're gonna have to make room for at some point. And instead, we're going to take Willier Abreu, who's a corner outfielder, and put him in center. That makes no sense. And when, when I first saw this all happen, I didn't see the play. I just assumed it was Tropicana Field doing Tropicana Field stuff. I thought the ball hit a rafter or hit a light or a catwalk or something. No, he just lost it. He just lost the ball because he's not a natural center fielder. And he shouldn't have been there in the first place. So it's okay to say that. It's okay to admit that this guy, Willie Abreu, who you got in the Vasquez trade, yes, the bat looks like it could turn into something. Yes, like he's a young kid. He can still grow. He's a corner outfielder. He's not a center fielder. Rafaela should be playing center field. The fact that he is playing shortstop more than he's playing center field makes no effing sense especially since we've been told now Trevor Story is a shortstop. He's not a second baseman anymore. Nope, just kidding. He's a shortstop now. So it just it, it makes no sense to me that 
you have Abreu in there playing center field where you know he's not comfortable with. You know it's not a natural position for him, and it came back to bite you. And, yeah, of course we're going to point out this kid, Sedan Rafaela, who is a higher-ranked prospect than Abreu and I think is a bigger part of your future than Abreu, is sitting on the bench while this guy's fumbling around in center field. Doesn't make sense. Abreu is actually the number 17th ranked prospect. Rafael is number three. And over the winter, there's been some comparisons with Rafaela to Mookie Betts. And I think we can all agree maybe that's, you know, asking a lot. But um, but aside from that, all the reports are about his defense describe him to be as elite. And the bigger question is his bat. So all the more reason he he should have been, uh, you know, in center field. Yeah, no question. It's just, again, it's your number three ranked prospect who is supposed to be defensively very good. That was the whole thing we heard until the bat exploded was that, hey, he's got a great glove, but we just don't know if he's going to be able to hit. Then he went to AAA and he started to hit. Best of both worlds. Put him in center field. <laughs> like what what are we like what are we wasting our time for at, at this especially at this point you only have so many games left before the offseason comes because let's face it you're not going to have an october so put them out there i just it it's so dumb it, it makes no sense and it's just again just cora screwing around and abreu cost you a lot of runs in that game and as far as his future he looks like he has a decent bat he could be a decent player, but Rafaela is clearly the better prospect. It's time to feature him a little bit more. So with that, we'll round out our bottom five. Terry, who's coming in at number one for this series? Number one would be a guy who's been uh, really in our good graces for much of the past month, but he had a, a terrible series, and that's going to be Adam Duvall. One for 13, he struck out five times. Uh, no, excuse me. He struck out nine times in those 13 at-bats. Game three in the finale, was, he got a golden sombrero, so he struck out four times in one game. Justin Turner also did as well, surprisingly. We didn't put him in the top five because, you know, he's the closest thing to Jesus on that roster, but redheaded Jesus, obviously. Um, but anyway, so Duvall just, not not a great series. There was two key at bats uh, with him, and it must have been in the eighth inning uh, of game two. Bases loaded, and he had two strikes, and he gets caught looking on a ball that ended up basically being middle middle. And then tonight uh, in the finale, I can't remember it was Fairchild that got him or if that was the inning before, but again, same thing. Key key spot, runners on base, gets absolutely frozen, and just some of the worst at-bats we've seen from him all year. Now, Tampa, you know, the, it's obviously the mecca of, of MLB pitching programs, and I think a good... Like some some of us wonder, or I maybe I shouldn't say some of us. I've wondered if, if perhaps Cleveland might be a little better because they've had some Cy Young winners come up. But 
watching Savali go from Cleveland to Tampa and how effective he's been, I think he struck out 11 or 12 of us uh, in game two. That seals it for me. Tampa is the the best pitching program in, in Major League Baseball. I don't think there's any dispute now, but um, so I'm not shocked that there there was a ton of strikeouts. But man, uh, just to freeze these guys in in key spots when they've been nothing but super clutch all year long, making plays to kind of keep our head above water, and. Um, they they definitely um, they definitely got dunked uh, by Tampa um, throughout the series. So Duvall, not a great series. Micah, yeah, with Duvall, there's just not a lot of in between. <laughs> he's either it seems like he's really scorching hot or he's ice cold, and there are a lot of holes in Duvall's swing and. Tampa seems like the ideal pitching staff and organization to say, okay, I see holes in his swing here. This is we're going to this is the area we're going to attack him with and see if he can fix it and see if he can beat us that way. And they he didn't beat them at all. So I think it's just a tough series. Um, you know, he wasn't going to stay hitting a home run four times a week that wasn't going to continue but uh definitely in game two he had some some opportunities there and it was costly that he didn't he didn't come through so tough series um but definitely not the reason why the red sox lost the series he was one of one of the reasons but not the reason but we had to pick somebody at number one and when you're one for 13 with eight k's it's an easy target yeah, we got the bad Adam Duvall this series, and this is not a series where you needed bad Adam Duvall. Um, he just looked lost. You know, just he was looking at pitches right down the middle that any other day he just flicks his wrist and he can send them 450 feet. Um, I don't know if it's just that it was a bunch of pitchers he didn't know and if he wasn't properly prepared or he just was kind of zoning out. I'm not sure. Um but yeah, he disappeared on you and bad time to disappear because, you know, people have been talking about it. And I think it's true. If it weren't for that wrist injury, he would have had maybe a career year here in Boston, um, given the way that his second half has gone once that wrist got fully healed. But yeah, this was just a weird series where he just looked, he looked like the Adam Duvall when he first got back from the injury, just lost, just flailing at pitches um, and then looking at pitches right down the middle and striking out. So this is who he is. He's, he's been in the league a long time. He's a high strikeout guy. When he's hot, he's, you know, infamous. He, he's, you know, someone no, nobody wants to see, but when he's cold, you can strike him out on three pitches pretty easily. You, you can fool him. Just get him to chase the fastball and then drop a curveball right in his lap and he'll look at it. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's too bad that he disappeared again. This is not a guy that emotionally it's not worth investing in too much. He's not going to be here beyond this year. I don't think, I know there's some growing sentiment to keep him around. I just don't see a spot for him with Rafaela knocking on the door, especially. So I think he's gone after this year. Um, 
wish we could have gotten more out of him. The the wrist injury really set him back, but you know, it's he'll, he'll land somewhere. He's he's a good player when he's healthy, and he's a good player when he's on. But you saw a series here in Tampa where he was not on. He was just a little bit off, a little bit unfocused, and just came at the wrong time for this team because they need every single game matters. Every single at bat matters right now if they even want to have a prayer of getting in. And he was not there this series. So it's unfortunate, but that's the way it goes sometimes. So with that, we will wrap up this episode. Keep an eye out for our Bastard Series prediction show. We'll be giving our predictions for the Baltimore Orioles series this weekend. Another big one coming up. Going to be a tough one, but we'll see how that goes. And we'll have our Bastards Roundtable episode as well. We'll address some of those rumors about the chief baseball officer position. Theo Epstein's name was thrown in. There were some other names thrown in. What does the future hold for this organization with that? That'll be out on Friday. And then the weekend crew will have you guys Monday morning to recap the Baltimore Orioles series. So until then, everyone, have a good weekend and take care.